Well, you're finally ready to take that first step and sit down and talk with a financial advisor and investment professional, perhaps. But how do you know if you'll be getting good investment advice? Stay tuned. Welcome to the Financial Wizard Podcast. This is personal finance in plain English for the rest of us. Join us each week as together we demystify money. And now, here's your host, Eric Henning. Welcome back. I'm Eric Henning. Thanks for joining me here on The Financial Wizard. This week, we're going to do an episode on how to uh, find out if you're getting good advice. Remember, that's one of the main goals of this podcast is to give you the intelligence, the information, and the um, just the attitude to have to not only be able to handle your money correctly, but also to know when you're getting good advice from the professionals you'll need. And make no mistake, while you are certainly smart enough to do all of this on your own, you may not have the time and you may not want to take the time to do it all yourself. You know, if it, you're certainly smart enough to repair your own automobile or your own vehicle, but that doesn't mean that's how you want to spend your weekends. It could be a great hobby. It could be the thing that you love to do. But if you're like most people, you'd rather have a professional do that, take care of that, keep your car running so that you can spend time doing other things. And that's why we hire people to dry clean our clothes or mow the lawn or, you know, go to a restaurant and eat a meal. That's why we hire professionals to do things for us because we're either not good at it or we'd rather spend time doing other things. And we've talked about that as well at some of the earlier episodes of the broadcast. So, Here's what we're going to do today. We're going to get down to the nitty gritty about when you're in a room with an advisor, how can you tell if you're actually getting advice that's in your best interest, that advice that's that's unbiased advice that's um, in your favor, advice that really is serving you. And uh, this is something that's near and dear to my heart because, as you know, I spent nearly 25 years in the investment business. I started out as an apprentice to a stockbroker and then became licensed, became a stockbroker, and then uh, eventually uh, became a partner in a money management firm. And that's how I ended up at the end of my career as a partner in a money management firm that was managing millions and millions of dollars for a lot of people. And during that time, I did the same thing over and over again. I sat down in a room with a person, uh, typically a married couple, and I simply asked them, you know, where does it hurt? Uh, what are your financial issues? What are you concerned about? What matters to you about money? And I would do my best to listen, try to figure out what they needed, and then come back to them after a period of research and study uh, with a plan or a proposal that would help them where they needed it. I wasn't a certified financial planner. Uh, I never held myself out to be a financial planner. I, uh, if they needed insurance or they needed legal advice or tax advice, I referred them to trusted professionals in that area. My specialty was the investment thing, and I'm still a firm believer that nobody's good at everything. I knew enough about those areas to, to know if they were getting good advice or not, but I referred them out to other professionals. I don't think that somebody who's an insurance person is necessarily going to know everything there is to know about estate planning. I don't necessarily think that an investment professional is the best person to ask for tax advice. So you're going to need a team, ideally. You're going to need a team of people who are really good at what they do. And if you have a, a certified financial planner, if they come from an accounting background, or an investment background or an insurance background, 
they're going to have a little bit of a different perspective coming from each of those backgrounds in terms of the amount of, of risk they're comfortable recommending that you take or the kinds of products they're going to be looking at. So um, having said all of that, uh, let's talk a little bit about the process of finding a financial advisor. Uh, this is really, really important. One of the things you're going to want to look at is um, referrals from friends and trusted colleagues. Who do other people use that they're happy with? Or maybe they've gotten good results with these people. Um, they feel like they're being listened to. They feel like their concerns are being taken seriously. Again, I, I, I'm probably like a broken record on this. This is especially important for women who unfortunately in our culture tend not to be taken as seriously by professionals, whether it's buying a car, going to the doctor, or um, talking about investments. There tends to be a little bit of an attitude, particularly with male professionals of, you know, I'm going to pat you on the head and, and you just, just do what I tell you, dear. And those days are over, guys. If you're in a professional and you're a male and you're dealing with women, clients, you already know this. Uh, the days of uh, being condescending and mansplaining everything are over. You need to treat people as the intelligent people that they are. And most of the clients you're going to encounter are highly educated uh, competent professionals in their own right, in their own fields, and they don't appreciate being talked down to. So if you're a professional, you definitely want to have that, that attitude of, I'm sharing with you information that you are going to be able to understand. If you're on the other side of the table, you definitely want to interview more than one professional. It's astonishing to me how many people go with the first person they talk to in these circumstances. You're talking about somebody with whom you may have a relationship that spans multiple decades, particularly if you're, if you've been, if you're under the age of 40, chances are good. If you're a non-smoker, chances are better than even that you're going to live to be 100. So you may be retired for 20 or 30 or more years. You're going to need to plan for that time and you're going to need to start now. And so you're going to have a long-term relationship with someone. And when that person retires, whoever succeeds them at the firm or whoever else you decide to work with, you need to know enough about the advice you've been getting and what you've been doing that you can bring somebody new up to speed and make sure or make sure that they're following the same plan. So that's important. So there's a couple of ways to look at it. One is how to make sure you're getting good advice. And the other is how to tell if you're getting bad advice. So we'll do the positive and the negative. So first, ask to find somebody. Ask for referrals from friends and family. Second, um, look at professional rankings. There are magazines that have local rankings, newspapers, top people in your area. Um, those are generally based on uh, client interviews and customer uh, interviews. Uh, they're generally not based on who's advertising in the, in the paper. Um, and you can usually tell that by looking at the advertisements. So if there's a uh, prestigious magazine in your area, in my area in D.C., it used to be the Washingtonian or Regardies, and they would have a list of the top financial advisors, and uh, those are pretty good people to talk to. And again, some people if you don't want to work with you if you're a small investor. If you have less than you know, half a million or a million dollars to invest, there are a lot of people that won't even talk to you. That's great. They have just disqualified themselves um, so that when you do have those amounts of money, you're, you're going to be with somebody else. That's fine. No big deal. Um, so you're going to want to look, and one of the places you're definitely going to want to look at is you're going to want to look to see if they have any kind of a criminal record or if they have a lot of client complaints. That's the negative side. It's like doing a background check. And uh, the way you can do that, and we'll have the link in the show notes, is to go to the FINRA 
website. Uh, the FINRA is the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority. It was it's the successor to the uh, uh, to CIPIC and some of the other um, uh, the NASD and some of the other organizations that I worked under. And uh, basically, it keeps a record of the people who have had problems. Um, you can look up your broker, um, and that, which is pretty cool. Um, you can go to brokercheck.finra.org. That's brokercheck.finra, F-I-N-R-A.org. Again, we'll have the link in the show notes. And you can put in their name and the state that they're in. You can see their employment history, their licensing, reg- any regulatory actions against them, any customer complaints. Um, because before things go to legal issues, typically they go to the regulatory body first as a complaint. Uh, they'll, that website, by the way, also has links to state-level regulator websites because investment professionals are not only regulated by the federal government, but by their state governments because they have to be licensed in each state in which they are operating. So, for example, if I were licensed to trying to practice all over the country, I'd have to have 50 separate state licenses uh, as well as the federal license, which, by the way, is very expensive. Um, so you can look at those state levels and you can look to see if there have been actions uh, by the state regulators, as well as perhaps federal regulators, against the people you're talking to. To me, um, if I see regulatory actions, that's a that's a deal breaker. That's that's the ultimate red flag that there's a problem, and I don't want to talk to that guy. Now, if somebody has one customer complaint in a 30-year career or a 20-year career, I'm not going to worry about that too much, and I'll tell you why. Because there's always it's just like you go on Amazon and this product has. 300 five-star reviews and one one-star review. There's always somebody who didn't read the manual or didn't couldn't figure out how to install the batteries or didn't pay attention to the product description and didn't get what they expected. Um, so, you know, somebody has one complaint that didn't go any further to regulatory action, I'm not going to worry about that. If somebody has a dozen complaints, that's a red flag. That's what I would worry about. So you're getting names from different sources, you're looking them up to make sure before you ever sit down with them, make sure they, they are your background checking them. So that's the, the next thing I would do. Then I would call them up and I would say, hi, I'd like to make an appointment with you. But before that, I'd like to talk to some of some people you've worked with. And they would probably have clients that have given them permission to talk to you. Now, there's some tricky privacy issues here. The broker can't tell you what they did with the client what products the client has been in, or any investment results that the client might have received. That's against the law. But what they can do is they can say, sure, this person's agreed to be a, a referral a source for me or a, a, you know, a, um, a reference, if you will. And you can call that person and say, you know, without asking them about their personal finance, just say, how is this person to work with? What's your experience with them? What would you say is, is the best way to work with them? And what sort of people are they, are they best at working with? And talking to two or three clients in advance of the appointment is a great way to go because that'll tell you a lot about that person, especially if you start hearing the same things like, yeah, they really listened to me or they were really understanding and they really took the time to find out what I needed. Uh, Those are the kinds of comments that you want to hear. Okay, so now you've found a person and you found three or four people that you want to interview and you call them up and say, hi, I'd like to interview you for being, you know, working with me as a financial advisor. You're going to leave your checkbook at home. If they tell you to bring your checkbook or there's a fee involved in that first meeting, run, do not walk to the nearest exit, okay? 
They shouldn't be charging you a fee to find out if there's a good match there. They should be willing to sit down with you for 15 minutes, half an hour, to kind of get an idea of whether you guys are going to be a good fit. Okay? It's a little like dating, I'm afraid. Um, or finding a doctor. You really need to sit down and, and talk to somebody. Okay? Now, even a lot of attorneys will give you a, a, the first, you know, half an hour free to find out, you know, if they're the right person to help you. I, I used to sit down with people for an hour or more for free um, all the time um, for a variety of reasons. Um, the business model that I used, um, because I built my entire business on radio, basically. This was really before the Internet became a big deal back in the 80s and early 90s. And I had a, a, a news report on a local uh, radio station, little AM radio station in Potomac, Maryland, which is a very wealthy area outside of Washington, D.C. And then I did a weekly call-in show. Actually, we were doing the Daily Business Report, and I was doing these ads, um, and I didn't really know what I was doing. I was advertising investment products, which was a mistake. And I got a call from a guy who said, I want to come to your seminar. We didn't have any. Uh, I want to get your newsletter. Didn't have one. And I want to listen. And I, you know, I heard you on your, your call-in show, which we didn't have. So I'm a big believer in letting my clients tell me how to market to them. And so, uh, which is something that you entrepreneurs might want to listen to and pay attention to. And so I went to my uh, boss and I said, Paul, we need to have, you know, a call-in show and a newsletter and seminars. And uh, so we did. So I started a Saturday morning radio show, Saturdays at 8 a.m., uh, which we affectionately dubbed the Try to Wake Up with Eric show. <laughs> and uh, I answered listener call-in questions. And it was tough getting call-ins because it was a small station and a lot of people didn't want to call in and talk about their private business. They were afraid their friends and neighbors um, would be listening and would know who it was. So we did our best to make it anonymous and make it easy for people. And that was our equivalent of the free cookie you got at Mrs. Fields uh, because, um, you know, people could listen to the call-in show and they could find out, kind of get a taste of how we treated people. We treated people with respect. We listened to them. We didn't treat them like they're stupid. We explained things in plain English, all of that. And then we used all of that to advertise the seminars. And so people would call in and give us their information. We'd sign them up for the seminar. And the seminar was purely educational. We didn't try to sell them anything except meeting with us, the appointment, the free appointment. We basically wanted to give people what I've been giving you here on the podcast for the last couple of months, which is information so that you can manage your money and know if you're going to be getting good advice from professionals. And so uh, that was our goal, to get them kind of up to speed, and then they could sign up for a free consultation at the seminar. And at one point, I was doing five appointments a day. I mean, it was really, really busy. And this was at a time when nobody was getting people to seminars. Uh, it was very, very gratifying. And so I'd sit down with somebody and just kind of sit and listen and say, what's going on? And what are you doing? And, there, and, and the financial business is, is difficult because there are people with unfelt needs. In other words, you, there might be things that you know you need to do, but there may be other things that you should be doing that you're not even aware of. We've talked about things like making a will, disability income insurance, things like that. And so we would try to uncover those needs as well and make sure that the person was really being properly taken care of. And again, I wasn't necessarily going to make any money on that. You know, if I referred them to a lawyer or an accountant, I wasn't going to get a kickback from that. It's against the law. I couldn't do it. But I just the goal was to take care of the client. So um, that's kind of what we did. So by the time we got to the second appointment and we started recommending actual investments, they'd heard me on the radio for weeks and months. They'd come to the, you know, the seminar. They'd um, ask questions and gotten a chance to see if we were any good or if, if we were just on the surface or if we actually went 
a little deeper than that. And they'd had that meeting with us. So there was a trust relationship building up. And that's what you want. You want to sit down with somebody. You want to ask them, have you written anything? What kind of articles have you written? Do you have a newsletter? Um, you know, is there something I can get that'll show me your investment philosophy? And uh, what are your certifications, professional certifications? Send me that. Explain what that means. Um, give me a, a readout or a printout of the ethical requirements engendered in that. For example, a CFP, a certified financial planner, has certain ethical requirements. They are required to act in the client's best interest as opposed to someone who doesn't necessarily have that designation who may simply be required by law to recommend suitable investments. It's a bit of a lower standard. To me, I don't care. I'd rather have an honest person working for commission on me, uh, for me, than a, than, a, than a crook working for fees. There are a lot of people, and this is, brings up another issue. You can pay commissions on products, and a lot of professionals make their money that way. And, or you can pay a fee for their time or their management expertise. And if you pay a fee, frequently those are expressed as a percentage of assets under management. In other words, they'll take X percent, like 1% or half percent a year from the account. And so obviously, the more money you make, the more money they make. So it puts you on the same side of the table in terms of getting paid. Whereas a commission salesperson makes money whether you make money or not. They simply make money every time there's a transaction. And obviously, that can attract people who do not have your best interest in heart. But please, please, please don't be one of those people who thinks that a commission automatically makes somebody a crook and fees automatically make them honest because doctors and lawyers and accountants work on fees exclusively. And we all know that there are a certain small percentage of those people who are also dishonest. So just because you're making a fee doesn't make you honest. And just because you're making a commission doesn't make you dishonest. It's really about getting into the same room with the person and getting a feeling for who they are. And you're going to get a gut feeling about this person pretty soon, pretty quickly. Trust your gut. You know, when you meet with somebody, trust your gut. If you feel like they're not listening to you, if you feel like they've, they've got an agenda, they're pushing something, you know, run. Do not walk to the nearest exit. Okay, that's a person, I don't care how they're getting paid, that's a person who's probably not going to have your best interest at heart. So you've gotten recommendations, you've checked them out, you're in that initial interview, and you're listening to your gut feeling, and you want to ask them, how do you get paid? And again, we talked about this. It could be commissions, it could be fees, it doesn't matter. What matters is, there is it, it really matters how they answer the question. Are they embarrassed to answer the question? Are they um, hesitant? Are they um, beating around the bush? Do they obfuscate? Are they, uh, you know, are they trying kind of not to tell you how they're getting paid? Are they trying, do they brush it aside? Um, you want somebody who's going to be straightforward. At least I do. I'm a very WYSIWYG person. What you see is what you get. You probably figured that out by now. And I really want somebody who's going to be straight with me. So if you get paid on commission, tell me that. I don't care. I just want to know what's it going to cost me and who's paying the fees and how do you get paid? It's as simple as that. And the answer may not be as simple as fees or commissions. It might be a combination. It might depend on what investment decisions you make as to how they get paid. If you're with a typical stockbroker, you're going to pay different things depending on whether you're buying individual stocks or bonds or whether you're paying for mutual funds 
or whether you're buying limited partnerships or unit trusts or even a number of other things that, that we will talk about in future episodes. The point is that before you buy anything, those need to be disclosed. You need to know exactly what it's going to cost you, not just initially, but over the course of, say, a typical 10-year period of owning the thing. Again, because you're not investing money that you're not going to, you know, that you're going to need in the next five or 10 years, hopefully. That's money that's going to sit because that's how one of the best ways to reduce risk is to be in it for the long term. So if the advisor is, you know, a little cagey about how they get paid, um, that's a, a red flag. You don't want that. Um, you don't want somebody who can't explain a product to you clearly. If they just are using jargon all the time, if they're saying, well, this uh, this stock is great because it's got a, a really low beta, it's got a high alpha, it's got a great PE, and we're really excited about its debt to equity ratio. If you don't know what that means, you're going to be lost. You're going to be at the, you're going to be like, well, I guess got to trust this guy and what he's saying or this lady, and and no. No, they should be able to explain to you in plain English, not only how the investment, uh, what the investment does, how it works, most importantly, why are they recommending it for you? Why is it great for you? I would start with that. Why is this a good investment for me? Um, what does it do? And how does it do what it does? Now, some stocks are not too tough to explain, but then the question becomes, why do I buy them now? For example, you probably know how a grocery store works. You probably think you know how a grocery store works. The fact is that a lot of people don't know that grocery stores have very, very thin profit margins. Only about 2 to 3% on their money is uh, earnings or profit. They get a lot of profit because companies pay for shelf space. That's why you could not buy a Heinz pickle in the state of Maryland for about 40 years. Because Heinz didn't want to pay for shelf space. They wanted the consumers to demand it, and they finally caved in, and now they're paying for shelf space. And once again, I'm happy to say I can get a Heinz pickle. But that's why you go to grocery stores, and you may only be able to get one brand of, of uh, deli meat because that brand has paid for an exclusive at the grocery store, and they're making a bunch of money off of that fee. So... Knowing that will help you understand how to invest in a grocery store chain. Maybe there's a, a grocery store that is only located east of the Mississippi and they're ready to expand westward. That could be a great opportunity, you know. Um, so the question is not only why is this a good company, why is this a good investment, why is it, why now, why buy it now? And what's, what's important about buying it now as opposed to next month or next year? And why is it right for me? And they should be able to answer those questions in plain English. Again, without a lot of jargon, they should be able to explain it. And if you get to the point where it's kind of like, no, just take my word for it, eh, it may not be the person you want to work with. Um, so you want somebody who is going to be straight with you, somebody who's going to listen to you, somebody who is going to um, make it very clear, uh, and they're going to make recommendations in writing that um, clearly are in your best interest. Um, if you ask them, what happens if I sell this investment? Um, they should be able to answer you forthrightly. Well, you don't, you're not going to be able to sell it for 10 years. Or, yeah, you can sell it any time, but the markets are very volatile and we can't guarantee what the price is going to be. That's why you want to be in, long, you know, in the long term. Um, so af after having checked their background, read what they've written, looked at their qualifications, gotten the references, you've sat down with them, they're listening to you, and they're making recommendations. The next thing should be 
the second appointment at which you can expect to pay a fee or possibly make an investment, then you're going to want to, at that point, have something in writing where they're giving you some kind of an overall proposal. Now, it might not be an overall financial plan. In my experience, most people don't really need a comprehensive financial plan. They have certain areas of pain points they need to do. They might need to make a will, might need to update their insurance. They might need to um, move an IRA, uh, a 401k from an old company to a new IRA that they're directing themselves. You know, different tasks that need to be done. In my experience, most people don't need a giant 200-page financial plan that not only are you not going to read, uh, but it's probably going to be more effective as a doorstop than anything else. Uh, what you probably want to do is just get advice for the specific things that you're dealing with. And if the professional uncovers additional things that you didn't know about, ask them to explain it, explain why you need to deal with it. And uh, again, they should be able to do that in plain English without any trouble. Okay, so you've done your homework. You're sitting in that first appointment. You've got somebody who's listening to you, explaining things in plain English. They've explained how they get paid. They're, they've explained their process. You've come back and they've given you kind of a, a, a couple of pages, executive summary on exactly what they think you should do. Build a stock portfolio. Roll over that IRA. Have an invest, insurance professional. Review your insurance. You know, maybe you need disability income insurance. See a lawyer about updating your will. blah 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 you know, maybe you've changed states of residence. You know, if you change, if you move to a different state, you need to update your will. A lot of people don't know that. So these are some of the ways that you can make sure that you're getting good advice. Uh, but ultimately, it's going to be your gut feeling as to the person you're working with that's going to make all the difference in the world. And it may be that that's a good firm, and it may be you just need to work with a different person in that firm. I don't know. But interview and be sure to interview two or three or four different people before you make your decision. Don't just go with the first person you talk to. So I want to thank you for listening. Um, we are certainly not done, but this is the end of season one of The Financial Wizard. Um, I am engaged in some very, very um, time-consuming professional stuff right now, both on a magic level and, and business level. And so I'm going to take a few weeks off to finish that stuff up, clear the decks so that I can give you the best attention that you deserve and the best content that you deserve. And so we will be back. Uh, let me take a look at my calendar here. We will be back um, -dum -bum -dum -bum -bum, August. We will be back the week of August 15th in about a month. Okay, I'm going to take a month off. And I would encourage you, if this is the first episode you're listening to, to go back and listen to our archived and current episodes of the podcast. Please give us your comments. Uh, send me your questions. I'll, I'll bank them up for future podcasts because I want to answer the questions you're actually asking. You can email me easily at eric at thefinancialwizard.com. That's E-R-I-C at thefinancialwizard.com. And uh, please go on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Leave us a rating and a review. Uh, the more positive ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, the more people will find us. And that means the more people can benefit from this information, which I hope you found useful as well. And you can also find us on Facebook at The Financial Wizard. You can find us on Twitter at You Can Do Money. Twitter is at You Can Do Money. So I want to thank you for um, being with me uh, since the beginning of April. And uh, this is, again, the end of Season 1. We're going to begin Season 2 on August 15th. Um, please re-listen to some of these episodes, and we will have some links in the show notes for you. Thanks very much. 
Um, have a great summer. And remember, take care of your money and it will take care of you. Thanks. God bless. This presentation by Eric Henning is purely educational. Nothing in this presentation should be construed as giving specific or individual legal, tax, or investment advice. You should make major financial decisions only after consulting with competent professionals licensed in your place of residence. While we can't give individual financial advice, we'd love to answer your questions. Please send your money questions to us at Eric at thefinancialwizard.com. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, review it, and tell your friends.